So last July, I was helping to teach the metta retreat, and uh, I learned from um, Guy Armstrong, who's a Spirit Rock teacher, of this very amazing uh, quotation, which was actually from the Buddha, but it was found in the text of the great commentator and systematizer of uh, Theravada Buddhism, which is the lineage or the tradition out of which Spirit Rock grows. And it's, it was a, uh, in the section on loving kindness practice and on uh, metta practice, uh, Buddha Gosa, you know, from the fifth century from, I believe, uh, I believe Sri Lanka or Southern India, uh, quoted what uh, was from one of the so-called inspired utterances of the Buddha. There's a whole text, which is, which I brought here called the Udana, which is this little text, kind of hard to get which is called the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And there are all these short little uh, stories which end with some incredibly inspired utterance. And I found this one very inspired. So I wanted to read this to you. And some of you may remember this. I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear, who loves oneself, will never harm another. And that last line particularly, who loves oneself, will never harm another, was uh, electrifying for me. Something in that just uh, brought a lot together. And so um, this morning I want to talk about that one line. And I I have rephrased it something like, one who loves oneself will not harm another. It really, um, to me, is a very deep teaching. And it goes in a lot of different directions. And for me, it it brought up um, a lot of issues. First of all, that love of self is fundamental to spiritual life. Contrary to our questions about lo- whether loving oneself is selfish in a negative way. So loving, that love of self is fundamental to spiritual life. Secondly, that love of self and love of others is deeply connected. Perhaps that one can't really love others unless one loves oneself. And a third theme that that harming others comes out of a lack of self-love. A way of understanding the roots of harming and even the roots of violence in our world. And that lastly, if we really want to address questions of harming and even violence, then a major part of our work is to cultivate our own self-love and to create the conditions that permit self-love of others. Not the usual way we'd think about the issues of the world. So this is what I want to explore. I want to really explore those four themes. One who loves oneself will not harm another. 
So I wanted to start with the with the uh, first aspect of that, which is that love of self is fundamental to our spiritual life. There's a there's a beautiful section of a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh where he says basically, "Don't worry about anything else. Just love yourself, and the rest will follow." Easier said than done, but this is what this is why people write poems because they're easier said than done. But, <laughs> uh, but this is what Thich Nhat Hanh said at this beautiful point in this uh, poem. He said, th- he said this in his own way, but I think it's about self-love. Why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't need to become anything else. Just be yourself. You don't need to become anything else. It's a sense that um, entering the fullness of ourselves, which requires self-love, is in a way the pivot for loving others. And as the inspired utterance suggests, it's also the pivot for our relations with others. It's our, and it's the pivot for a healthy society. And so, but we might have a lot of qualms about that. We might think, oh, to love myself is, is selfish. Or, you know, we might think, um, I'm a spiritual person, you know, I'm above loving myself. Or we might say to love myself is really to be selfish, and I don't want to be like those narcissistic, navel-gazing, New Age types who, who just, you know, or that loving oneself is overly self-indulgent, you know. You might have your own reasons why self-love is not appropriate, you know. Think, think what those might be. What are your lines? You know, and they may be less uh, spiritually cast. They may be more lines like, uh, uh, I'm not really deserving of love. That might be actually even beneath consciousness, right? Or it might be that um, I can't really attend to myself because the world's in too bad a shape and I need to help others. No. Um, and so I think there can be a tremendous amount of confusion. And I know I certainly um, have shared in that. In terms of this uh, intention to love oneself. But there's really, um, there's really a way in which the deepest qualities of caring and loving for oneself is actually not really selfish. And maybe we, maybe we need to go into that territory to work out the balance. But there is sort of a paradoxical way in which when we go to the depths of ourselves, we find that peace in ourselves, we find a way of loving ourselves in a way which then actually cuts through selfishness. And that's what we do in this practice in a way. Ironically, even though sometimes, as it were, people from the outside might say, oh, these people who sit quietly by themselves, you know, they're just selfish, you know, typical Marin, you know, or whatever. 
you know. But there's actually something, I think if we've done this for a while, we know that there's something that's uh, misguided about that criticism. That there's actually something, there's a way in which when we go to the depths of ourselves and touch that kind of uh, love of ourselves, we actually become useful for other people, maybe for the first time. Um, Dogen, the great Zen teacher from the 13th century, he said it this way, to study the Buddha way is to study oneself. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas. Now, I think this question of uh, loving oneself is not only not necessarily selfish, but it also is often a response to a lot of the conditioning that many of us have that we should actually um, take care of others. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded of, um, I remember hearing a talk by Cornell West, who's an African-American philosopher and activist, and he said that actually when there's been conditioning that says that one should not love oneself because I am this or that, because, and it's particularly the case for members of groups who've been oppressed, and in a way, all of us have been in those kinds of groups, you know, because if you actually add up the groups, some more than others, of course, but, but all of us in some ways have been told that we're not deserving of love. And so in some ways we buy into that and to actually cultivate self-love is a tremendous, uh, sort of it's an act to go against the conditioning. Because if you think of how we've been conditioned, it's really, in a way, we've been conditioned to give away ourselves, to find our, and this is really what the teachings are, to find our supposed happiness and satisfaction in somewhere outside of ourselves, to do it by gaining the approval of others, by pleasing someone else's plan or script, and there's a way in which when we come back to that basic quality of self-love, we go against that conditioning. There's a way in which if we really love ourselves, it's very, we're very hard to be manipulated by either other people or the society. There's a way in which loving oneself gives a kind of groundedness in ourselves that becomes, I think, quite a force in the world. In this tradition, we particularly practice this, or we cultivate this quality of um, um, self-love, if we want to call it that, through metta practice. And many of you who've done metta practice know that it's a very powerful purification practice. We sit here and we say, may I be happy. We start with ourselves. In the metta practice, we start with ourselves. We start with this notion that love of self is not only um, fundamental to spiritual life, but it's a kind of starting point to spiritual life. And so we actually cultivate that. And those of us who've done metta know that it's really hard. 
And you sit there and you come up with your list of why I'm not loving. And we cut through any number of different uh, patterns of conditioning. You know, probably self-judgment is the most intense one. And we all, in this society, we seem to be deeply conditioned by self-judgment. I know that when I uh, meet people or work with people, self-judgment is, is almost, it's one of the top two or three themes that, that, <clears throat> that we have to deal with. And we, we can know how, how deep that is. You know, about, um, I think I've told this story here, but about 20, a little over 20 years ago, I was, I was at uh, a retreat at uh, Barry, Massachusetts, and the Dalai Lama came. And there was, uh, he took questions from the uh, group. And one person, they were written questions, and the Dalai Lama was, I think, given the question through a translator. And, and the question was, I don't think that I, um, I am deserving of being happy. What do you say about that? What did the Dalai Lama say? This very gentle, benevolent, compassionate man, he said, you are totally wrong. <laughs> he said, by your, by your very nature, you are deserving of being happy and deserving of being alive. And this is somewhat what we tap in the metta practice, but we have to cut through all that kind of conditioning, all that very, very deep conditioning that makes it hard to love ourselves. And I remember when I was um, doing my first long metta retreat, long meaning about a week at that time, it was about 15 years ago, and I was using the phrases, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be loving, and it, it felt a little bit mechanical, as it sometimes does for some of us. And, but yeah, I was doing it faithfully for a week, and one morning, in, not in the actual formal meditation, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. And it was kind of snuck in. <laughs> wasn't part of the official meditation. <laughs> and I was really touched. I said, thank you. <laughs> and it was, it was almost as if something was surfacing that was hard to surface. You know, and I've, um, I've met people who've practiced for 30 years who've said, I have a hard time loving myself. I think it's really deep, uh, particularly in Western culture. Not because Western culture is bad, but because I think we're kind of exploring kinds of individuation that may not have existed before. So we, we do this metta practice, and we cultivate gradually this ability to care for ourselves, to love for ourselves, to love ourselves. And it's really in a way to come to peace with ourselves, to have some kind of acceptance of our being, have some compassion for ourselves, and just to move into a kind of quality of, I think it's, you know, it's what in, sometimes in Mahayana tradition, they talk about as the acceptance of our basic goodness. And there's some way that, when we, that we can touch that. And like I say, I think when we touch that, a lot of things become possible. And so it really brings me to that second main theme, which is that when there is a quality of self-love, we can much more readily have love for others. 
I think we probably know this from our own relationships, from our own, from our own actions. But when we've, when we've developed that quality of self-love in ourselves, for one thing, we've worked with a lot of the impediments to self-love. We know them well. We know what self-judgment is about. We know what sadness or despair or guilt or some sense of internalized depression. We know what those things are. And I think it really, if we know those in, in kind of depth in ourselves, we become able to know them in others with a lot of compassion. We see that we're all, in a way, um, this human life is a predicament, right? There's a human life where we've, we come, we're born, we get a certain amount of love, and we get a certain amount of conditioning that makes self-love very, very hard. You know, and it's this very difficult situation. It also is beautiful and blessed in many ways, but it has its difficulties. And when we touch that self-love in ourselves, we have the compassion for others. In metta practice, in the loving-kindness practice, we touch first the self-love, and then we gradually begin to extend it outward. And this is the way the practice works. It's, it's that we touch in ourselves a sense that we deserve love simply because of our being. I think this is really what love is, isn't it? It's a sense of warmth and openness and connection simply because I am because you are. That's the deepest. It's not a conditional love. It's not love, I'll love you if you act in the right way, if you meet the uh, 14 stipulations of our common collective agreements. Those are important. (laughs) But that's not really what we're talking about with love, is it? There's something that is a quality of acceptance and warmth and presence simply because of the fact of existing that we can have also towards the trees or the grass or even even the rug. And I think we know maybe in our moments of deepest love or caring, I think we, we maybe have it, we've touched that. That we, that we actually, there, it, it really is extended in a way to any, any being that we encounter and even to inanimate objects. You know, I know that, that for myself at times it's been amazing, you know, just to to feel, I, you know, I, I think one time where I, where this awakened really uh, in a way that was very surprising was um, after I had surgery. And I, I have a friend named uh, Jean Achterberg, who some of you know because she's written some books on uh, healing. And Jean had, the, had had the same surgery as me. This was like a, an oral surgery to align my jaws. And it was pretty bad surgery. They basically hacked my jaws apart <laughs> with a saw. And Jean, who works in this area, is, is actually saying, we don't actually realize what surgery is about. Surgery is actually, when we go under general anesthesia, we come very close to death. And that often, for some people, after surgery, we're in an altered state for a while. We see things different. I was in this altered state for about 10 days. And uh, there was sort of a, a mix, as there sometimes is, between fear and love. There was this, sometimes there was a quality of just this fear for the very act of existing. 
but it was alternated between with incredible love. And I, I just had this love even for, I remember even for the, the, uh, the mugs that I was drinking out of, because they were too, they were vulnerable. <laughs> they would break, you know. And it was, but there was a, it was a sense of touching into a love that extended beyond just the love for a special person, but even for whatever is. I think this is the deepest sense of love that we touch into, and it's a love that we have in our mature love for others, whatever they are, whatever they, whatever they do. And again, it doesn't mean to excuse their lack of com, you know, complying with the 14 guidelines, but, we, but there's, there's a quality of love there. And in metta practice, we cultivate that. The teachings of the Buddha are that love isn't just something that we wish for or that we have a sense of shooting the craps. Um, and my friend Greg is not walking out because he's abandoning love, but because he has a prior appointment that he told me about. <laughs> just to say that. So, so this is what we do in, in the metta practice. And I think it's really the direction of our practice in the Vipassana practice and the metta practice. We access what the Buddha called the boundless heart. I think that's what I was, through the grace of general anesthesia, was able to tap into and touch. We, we access that boundless heart, which I'm sure we all know at certain moments, right? We all have touched that. And the question is, how do we live in that more and more? That's why we practice. That's why we do the insight practice to see the obstructions that get in the way of that. That's why we do the metta practice to, to bring about that. So let me read just the, uh, the end of the metta sutta from the Buddha where he talks about that. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. This is the direction of our practice. We start with the love of ourselves. Then there's this third theme, which is very powerful, which is that harming others can be understood as coming out of a lack of self-love. Very provocative in a certain way. Very provocative way of understanding this. In In a way, it's a restatement of the famous phrase from the Dhammapada, violence never ends with violence. Violence only ends with love. And it's a sense that the love of self can really uh, transform the roots of harming and the roots of violence. I think we, we know, I think, how harming occurs in small ways and large ways in our own lives. The, the notion of the Buddha is that our acts of harming come out of a, of a deep ignorance when we're basically unconscious. And we can think of the small times. You know, I think of times when someone says something somewhat nasty or sarcastic to me. My instant reaction is to give the same thing back, right? I think a few of us have done that in the last 24 hours, <laughs> right? And where we, th- where we look to the, just the rounds of violence in, in, the, in the world, you know? And I think, I think we can actually if we look more precisely, we can see that harming, that to harm another, there have to be certain conditions. There have to be certain situation. 
You know, I think that for one thing, a lot of harming comes when we are temporarily blinded, we might say, by our pain. We have a certain pain, and what we learn to do in the practice is we learn to just be attentive to the pain, know that it's there, and work with it. Typically, when we harm, we are, as it were, blinded by our pain. It takes us over, and we are just caught in reactivity. It's hard to harm another without being caught by reactivity, either in the moment or maybe in some sustained way where we're out for revenge or just to hurt others. So what happens, in a way, is that when we are hurt, when there's pain, we're unconscious, and we tend to lash out, and we do what I call, we pass on the pain. That's why pain and violence have a cyclical nature. We can see that really easily in the Middle East. We can see that really easily maybe with some difficulties that we have with people close to us, where it just goes round and round. What the Buddha is saying is that love in some form, breaks that cycle. That's the teaching. So, when we're not with love, we're caught in something else. We're caught in reactivity. We are not in touch with our own uh, energy of caring, typically. We're out of touch with self-love. Somehow, we have the belief, it's almost an unconscious belief, that lashing out or harming another will actually solve our problems. That has to be, you know, when I'm reactive and in, in turn, when someone else is reactive towards me, do, doesn't there have to be a belief somehow that if I lash out, I will protect myself? That I will, that the person will not do it again? Very misguided belief because it usually keeps things going, right? But doesn't there have to be some belief that this is going to be effective? Even if it's unconscious, we don't just do this because we're stupid. There has to be some belief there that actually the act of harming, the act of reacting like that, has some efficacy. But we can question that. It seems really uh, not, so, not, so, not so helpful. And so I think it's, it's powerful to look at the notion that harming comes out of a lack of self-love. And I think if we cast an eye on the world, it's not hard to see that. You know, where does a lot of violence come from? Where does, you know, if we think of people who engage in, in interpersonal violence, it comes out of frustration, it comes out of anger, it may often come out of a lack of self-love. When we talk about the people who are like at the bottom of our society, who engage in a certain amount of violence, how much does that come out of a lack of self-love, much of which is conditioned by the society? I once saw this uh, television show where Bill Moyers interviewed teenagers who had murdered other people. And almost to a person, they said, I was in so much pain, I had to have someone else feel what, what, what I was feeling. And this person just was there at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's how it killed. Nothing personal. But I was just in so much pain myself. And that pain is connected with a lack of self-love. Or if we have to, if we can think of what are the roots of terrorism? Many years ago, a lot of people said that a lot of the roots of terrorism, particularly in the Middle East or in many countries, is actually humiliation. It's like a kind of daily humiliation that people go through. Which you could say is making it very, very hard for one to love oneself. 
Imagine if you were humiliated all the time. You know, whether by, in a personal sense, or in a sense of having um, one's country be dominated by other countries. It's very hard to have that kind of self-love come when the conditions are very, very hard. And when you think of like the recent photos from Abu Ghraib, the prison, what is that but just humiliating people so that self-love is very, very hard, if not impossible? And what does that provoke? It provokes the cycles of violence. And so it's, um, I think it's for me, it's very helpful to look at the world with, that, with the eyes of this uh, statement of the Buddha, one who loves oneself will not harm another, because it can help us to see how much the roots of harming come out of conditions, either in ourselves or in others, where self-love is very hard. So this really leads me to the last point, which is a hopeful point, which is that if we're interested in addressing the roots of harming, we cultivate the conditions for self-love. We cultivate the conditions where we can love ourselves and where others can love themselves. And so, it's not what we usually see in our politicians' suggestions for remedies to the problems of the world. But I think it'd be an amazing pivot to say, let us set up the conditions where children can love themselves. What's the percentage of children in poverty now? A quarter? Are those the conditions for children loving themselves? Where's that going to lead? It's, it's so, it seems to me that this is a beautiful pivot for um, both directing our practice and directing our work in the world. That we can really um, see how for ourselves we can reduce the tendencies to harm others by coming back to that core of ourselves where we love ourselves and thereby love others. Connected with that, it's the ability to love ourselves. It also means that we can actually have the capacity not to be overwhelmed by our pain. Or to come increasingly to be able to be with our pain so we don't pass it on. To know when there's pain, to know more readily through mindfulness when someone does something to us that we don't like. And rather than lashing out with reactivity, I think it's a quality of self-love to say, oh, Oh, Donald, you didn't like that when that person said that, did you? No. You know, it's, that's mindfulness. It's to, sort of to, to say, you really want to smack that person, don't you? Yes. <laughs> uh, would that be wise? No. You know, is there, is there a way that you can rest? Because there's a way when we're, maybe when we're disrespected or not seen or not heard, I think it challenges our sense of self-love, doesn't it? There's something like that that happens. When we're not seen or heard, we, the part of ourselves which is not solid with our own self-love wobbles. And we get confused and we look for certainty more externally than internally. And so cultivating this quality in ourselves starts to make us a safety zone for others and for ourselves. We start to become um, 
to the extent that we've tapped, tapped that self-love, we become able not only to not be harmful to others, but actually to help them. To not be so vulnerable, to not be so manipulable by circumstances. I think people who have self-love are very dangerous to bad authorities because they can't be knocked, they can't be pushed around because there would be a kind of violation of oneself to do that. So I think that uh, in that way, self-love becomes a force for justice. And I think it's no coincidence that if you look like to the civil rights movement or the writings of people like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, they talk about self-love as a starting point for justice, right? And you can see that, and it's understandable. And so there's a way in which when we love ourselves, um, we create safety and increase uh, justice, not just for ourselves, but for others. The Buddha said it this way, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And so I, I wanted to close with what I find to be a really beautiful statement of this principle, this principle that one who loves oneself will not harm another. I was amazed that I could develop a whole talk out of one sentence, that there's something, but I hope, I hope it, the, that that line touches you like it touches me. It's something that's, that's uh, I knew when I heard that, 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 that it somehow um, brought together so much. But I wanted to end with, the, with a, a very, what I find to be a very beautiful expression of this principle by the uh, uh, former Buddhist monk, Nayanaponikatera. Some of you know his work because he wrote the, the book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, a very clear writer, originally from Germany, lived in Sri Lanka many years. And this is what he said. One whose relationship to one's fellow being is governed by this principle, the principle of that uh, one who loves oneself will not harm another, will protect oneself better than with physical strength or with, with any wep- that any weapon might, might help. One who is patient and forbearing will avoid conflicts and quarrels, will make friends of those for whom he or she has shown a patient understanding. One who does not resort to force or coercion will under normal conditions rarely become an object of violence as he or she provokes no violence from others. And if one should encounter violence, one will bring it to an early end as one will not perpetuate hostility through vengeance. One who has love and compassion for all beings and is free of enmity will conquer the ill will of others and disarm the violent and brutal. A compassionate heart is the refuge of the whole world. So I'll stop here. Thank you. When you kept saying about talking about self-love, um, I, I was an elementary and a junior high school yeah. one year, and I kept thinking the teenage years, you know, they're really into themselves. Every time you would mention self-love, I think I would think of them. Yeah. 
constantly near, so real, about right. the things they do, and that isn't what you're talking about. That's right. See, that's what's interesting, isn't it? That, that's, cause our, that's where our objections come up. Self-love is to revert to adolescence. <laughs> and who wants to do that? You know, and I, I, th- I always like the line of Jack Kornfield where he says that um, if you believe in reincarnation, the main reason to get awakened is so you don't have to go through adolescence again. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so there's something... <laughs> um, so there's so I think it, it's a great question because it, it asks us to be clear what is the difference between the it's really the difference between self-centeredness and self-love if we can use that language that there's something or the kind of self-love we're talking about to use another uh, term it's, it's sort of the opposite of narcissism because it's not really um, for one thing it's not trying to establish an identity which says, I'm good and you're bad. It's not self-centered in that way. Um, how else would you see that, that difference? Oh, oh, um, the, the teenagers are usually very thinking about themselves, yeah. their feelings. I don't know if it's the hormones that does it to them, but they're wired completely differently from most Okay, I think we may have some, please. Well, I think for them, there's a terrifying aspect to um, the lack of identity that they possess yeah. at that time, and I don't, I don't see that as particularly unhealthy, but they don't have a sense of identity and a sense of self-acceptance to fall back on. And so they're in this very, you know, they're trying to externally find what these things are, is, is my experience. And yeah. to me, the real difference is, you know, what the teen is lacking is a deep sense of self-acceptance um, and ability to love themselves in light and in the presence of one's deep limitations and shortcomings and all those things that we come into contact with. And, um, you know, that experience of self-acceptance to for me is the sort of focal point of this road to self-love that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, that's helpful because it's, uh, that, I think the, it's, it's like um, what we go through in adolescence and after seems like a necessary um, stage, and it's a transitional stage, and the problem is if one stays in that stage the rest of one's life or a, lar- a long time, because it's really trying to find some, um, and, and a lot of people have said American culture does that <laughs> to a lot of us, <clears throat> but it, it seems like that is a, a transition time, and maybe you know, and it's maybe it's trying to find a more external identity that's different from the identity that one's been given. You know, and it's a time for testing and trying out. And if you know, I'm, I know that a lot of people are really doing some beautiful work, so that the um, experience of adolescence in our society can touch into some of that deep self-acceptance before you know, without having to uh, go through uh, 10 years of therapy and 
be 40 or 50 years old. Um, because I think that, you know, so a lot of people, I, I know um, there was something just at Spirit Rock on the weekend that my friend Diana Winston and Noah Levine took part in. And I know Diana's been working with uh, 14, 15 year old girls to develop um, rites of passage that can tap into something deeper. Because, because I think what we're looking at is something where we, we're, we're out of some deep anxiety. We go to this external identity, this external support or that, and which of course we can do at any age. We can do it throughout our adult years. And what, what's being asked for is to go to some, something deeper. And I know that a lot of people are trying to work to make that possible for teenagers through rites of passage, through vision quests, things like that. You know, it was amazing for me to go uh, help with a meditation retreat for teenagers, uh, which took place at Abayagiri uh, a little while ago, and to to be with them and to see that a lot of the, those teenagers were tapping into some, I think, what we're talking about. So, but that is so. It's really more the I think the emphasis on externals versus the emphasis on something touching something deep in oneself. Because I think in traditional societies, there was a sense of uh, uh, coming of age meant tapping into your sense of vision and vocation, which was something deep and, and, and quite personal. And I think we've lost that to a large extent, and things have become more external. So I think, does that help some? Yeah, yeah please. I think there's something dangerous about... Um, polarizing into us and them. It's the seed of mm-hmm. classism, racism, every possible mm. ism. And I think it taps into um, where we started this conversation, mm. you know, of, of um, polarizing the self, almost, yeah. between the self, the other, because I'm the mother of an 18-year-old, and she's a truly, truly beautiful person. And I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of really beautiful persons. She certainly has struggles, you know, yeah. like 300 of them for after prom yeah. um, the other evening. So I certainly have that sense of them. But um, having taught race class, et cetera, there's that, that polarization. And we find it, I think, in our language. It's unconscious when we find ourselves saying they. There's really very little truth about a they. They mm-hmm. is a lot of different eyes, if there even is a self to make into an eye. Yeah. And I liked what you said about um, accepting the, mm-hmm. the limitations, growing through the past. Yeah. Acceptance. But I know for myself, when I start saying they and us, it's yeah. like a red flag of warning. Yeah, <coughs> that's helpful because I think that, that quality of metta is more a quality that tries to uh, cut through those uh, dualities or the, the barriers, which we all have in ourselves, right? And that, but that this work that, that I think I think what another way of saying it would be that the kind of self-love that I think the Buddha is talking about is not at the expense of anyone else. I think that's a clear way to say it. There even is else. Yeah, but we all have, but we all have these others, and I think. We, so, so the work, I think, is to um, know that and, and to be aware and to find ways to transform that quality of other, mm-hmm. uh, which is a long work.
Thank you. <laughs> Please. Rosemary. And, and where is um, self-love on the way to no self? Okay. <laughs> well, we have the, everyone here, where is, where is self-love on the way to no self? Um, I think this is where we sort of, where we have um, possible confusions because of using two vocabularies. You know, and we, and in, in the metta practice, we do the, we, we cultivate love of self. But we're also taught, maybe in the Vipassana practice, that we shouldn't get fixated about a sense of self. You know, Dogen, in the quote I read, said, you study yourself, and then you forget yourself in studying yourself. That's a Zen way of answering your question. <laughs> uh, and it's, um, maybe, maybe it's to, when we say self-love, it's not to give too much weight to the sense of self. Uh, in the sense of thinking that there's some separate, distinct being here. But it's more, because I think the Vipassana practice teaches us to have more of a sense of interdependence. But the, it's, um, so it, it's, a, it's a tricky question, isn't it, to, to, to understand conceptually. Yeah, and then yeah. there's this idea that you can't give up something you never had. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, yeah. on the way to no self, it seems like there almost needs to be, um, you know, kind of this deep respect <coughs> that you talked about. This, yeah. this something deeply there that, um, you know, almost in the way that when you're in meditation and you look into pain or something, it's like you look in, you look in, you look yeah. deeply enough, and then it just. It disappears. I, I think it's something like that, Rosemary, because it's, it's a, if we think of, we may want to think of the self-love as also transitional in a way. You know, that it's, that because of our conditioning, it's extremely skillful to cultivate self-love. But doing that takes us into interconnection. It takes us into that territory you know, maybe like I was describing with the mug and the, the post-operation sensitivity, which didn't have a very um, fixated sense of self. You know, and so maybe this is language that says, because of our conditioning, it's really important to cultivate self-love, but in a way, it's not the final story. Yeah. This, could it, could it be possible also, I mean, it's, that was a question I was thinking of, and yeah. I'm really glad you asked it, to also think of no-self as sort of like the highest realization of self-love? Yeah. In some way? Yeah. I think they measure interconnectedness. Yeah. Yeah. Jen? Well, for me, there's also, and again, this might be semantics, but the step on the way to self-love is self-acceptance. Yeah. Because it's, um, you know, when I think about self-love, it can get very tangled with all the sense of deserving or yeah. selfishness and all that. Yeah. Self-acceptance, if I work on that, I find that so much drops away because I start being in contention with myself. Yeah. And when I have that acceptance, then it's much easier to look at someone else and accept whatever they're going through. 
love is almost just a byproduct of that self-acceptance. Yeah, that, that, that's helpful because it's another way to say, I think what you're saying, Jen, is, is that, that the deepest self-love transforms the fixated qualities of the self. That that's the work that we that we do, and if we do metta practice or if we do some other transformative practice, which comes to self love, we get we do get caught by the language, don't we? The language can be tricky or make problems, but the, but the actual experience seems to be about um, you know working through judgments, working through self judgment. What is working through self judgment about? It's about um, identifying a lot of the unconscious. Uh, beliefs that we have about ourselves, a lot of the unconscious patterns, images, and so forth, which uh, are more like fixated senses of self. So if I work to, for me to get to self-love, I have to work through self-judgment a lot, you know, which is, I think, a very important practice for all of us to, to do that in different ways, in metta practice or in seeing those patterns in the insight practice or, you know, coupling that with uh, skillful psychological work. Because the structures of self-judgment are really deep in our in our culture, and if I can, um, what is what actually happens when I'm cutting through self-judgment? It is cutting through uh, conditioned and to some extent delusive uh, self-concepts, which I've had for a really long time. You know, which maybe I'm you know trying to please this or that person or reach this or that level of perfection, which is which is unreal. Separation of self-judgment yeah. and start to embody self-acceptance. There's a sense of ease yeah. that comes. It's just, it's a relief. Yeah. Did everyone hear? Yeah, please. I just had a sudden thought that um, um, relates back to adolescence and the sense of self-acceptance and the internal and the external, um, and that is. Uh, working to a point of self-acceptance and self-love, you need to work through the judgments and uh, all these conditions of society, kind of of your uh, tribe, your group, your gang, your culture. And adolescents are on this transitional path of uh, independence and growth, and they are they move through a definite. Uh, period of intense identification with their tribe or their their own subculture, and it's like they need these markers to establish their uh, their place in the group, and that gives them their their temporary um, place in society and a recognition and a power, and they do that by all these external features. Um, tattoos or ear piercings or a certain look or clothes and they spend a lot of time in the mirror verifying that they are they they're in their niche and they look alike and I think um, when you get when people get fixated at that point where it's all external and it's the mirror image um, that is the kind of selfishness or self um, fixation that becomes kind of abhorrent when you think about self-love. 
and not being able to move past the external features um, is where adults and a, a more mature uh, um, person uh, gets confused between self-love and self-centeredness or self-fixation or constantly uh, changing their diet or changing their look or having plastic surgery and they're thinking that they're loving themselves but actually they're still in that external uh, version of self-love. Yeah. I think that that's helpful in, in a lot of ways. I mean, one way to say it. And, well, it's it's a it's a it's a tricky area, and and, and like uh, like you were saying, it there's it's, we have to be really careful with our language and watch our whatever tendencies there are to create others. But I think I think for me, you helped clarify it because it was it's really the the opposite of self love is depending on love to come from outside because one has met a certain image or condition. And that's, I think, that's one way to talk about the opposition that I think, to me, is helpful. It's, it's, it's ways, ways that I deserve love because I have done X. I look this way, I perform this way, I do what this person wants, I internalize the qualities of the society or, or whatever. And I think that's, to me, what's helpful because the the, the quality of metta is a quality of love that is really um, more unconditional. And so we, we can go back to that familiar term from, from Christian language of unconditional love, that the metta is, is very much that. It's not dependent. There's, there's a love uh, because of one's being, because of, because of the fact of existing. And I think that's what we... Uh, are encouraged to tap into, which is really uh, um, it involve, for most of us involves some work, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it's not it's not easy. Maybe the last the last one because we're we're at we're at our time. Yeah. Um, this is just very synchronous because I was at a workshop all this past weekend yeah. on loving yourself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the phrase that I really liked, and it sounds simple, but it takes getting to is that loving yourself is accepting yourself, mm-hmm. especially when you're not accepting yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it's just like that you That's really right. get to practice that. Accepting oneself, even when one doesn't accepting oneself. And accepting oneself can also mean accepting the need for change. Mm-hmm. So there are a few little mind, <laughs> mind bogglers here. Yeah. Uh, and I hope you also lo- uh, were touched, uh, as I've been touched, by the sense that the link between self-loving and not harming others. Because that, that's what really somehow connected for me. Because that, that, we don't usually think of it that way, do we? That, that, uh, that it's really about, uh, and, that, and that the roots of uh, non-harming are very much in self-love. And that, that's what really intri- intrigued me to, to make these connections. So, if, if it's real, real brief, because we should finish, okay. This is such a huge topic. Yeah. And um, I think it's incredibly valuable for me. Yeah. And I know we have to get out of this room, but 
Yeah. Or I can I can stay up here for a while um, and and talk with anyone who wants to continue. It's important to finish for the for people who need to leave at eleven. So I'm just sitting quietly for a minute and letting whatever was um, helpful or that uh, touched one this morning be present. Might have been from the talk or discussion, or might have been from the sitting or even the drive over. And particularly if there are any intentions which come out of the morning, let those be present as well. So in in closing, with this theme, one who loves oneself will not harm another, we see really clearly the connection between our own practice and our life with others. And we know that we practice not just for our own awakening, which is really vital, but we practice also for the awakening of others. And we dedicate the fruits of the morning and our work together to the healing and the awakening, and particularly the awakening of self-love and love of others for all beings. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.